Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded by me, Liam Miller. He, him. He's a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Gayomago people, uh, recognize their ongoing sovereignty. Uh, my guest, oh, and, you know, and Love, Rinse, Repeat is supported by the vital leadership team of the Uniting Church in Australia Synod of New South Wales, ACT. Thank you for that support. My guest today is Ellen Lewin. Ellen, welcome along. Hi, nice to be here. So for those who don't know, uh, Ellen is a professor of anthrop- professor emeritus of anthropology and of gender, women's and sexuality studies at the University of Iowa. Uh, she is the author of Gay Fatherhood, Narratives of Family and Citizenship in America. And her recent book, uh, published with the University of Chicago Press, is filled with the spirit, sexuality, gender and radical inclusivity in a black Pentecostal church coalition. Uh, which I read we're going to be talking about today and is an incredible read. So be sure to open up a tab while you're listening and order yourself a copy of that book. So, Ellen, I guess starting with, you know, in the book you kind of talk about how you first got in touch with or or became connected with the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, um, which I think had a different name at the time. Uh, But so I guess before you even got to the idea of, hey, maybe there's a anthropological study here hey maybe there's a book here uh how did you kind of connect in with this uh movement and i guess what was it that led you to stay around more than once okay well you know i'm an anthropologist and as people may know one of the things that anthropologists study is religion some anthropologists but <laughs> i never had it had never been my my area so um it's not that i was out looking for a study of something in the, in the domain of religion, because it, it just wasn't my specialty. My specialty was gay and lesbian people in the U.S., and, they're, and mainly looking at their families and how they, how they solidify and, uh, and establish their families. Mm. And so I was working on the study of gay fathers, which you just mentioned, and that meant I spent uh, a year living in Chicago, which is about um, – uh, 200 and some odd miles from where I live. So it's the nearest big city to Iowa City where mm-hmm. I'm located. And I managed, I got a year off and I managed to arrange housing in two different areas of Chicago. And so I was doing what I normally do, which is to go around and interview people and talk to them at, at length. Often these are very long interviews of several hours. And I was trying to get to know gay dads in the community. And one of the places, and I, I knew this from other work I'd done, one of the places you find parents is in churches. <laughs> and so I was, I, I found out where um, the main uh, churches that had large gay congregations were. And, I, and then I met with some gay, um, gay and lesbian clergy in Chicago to get both their ideas about this and then their advice and who should I talk to. And it was that kind of thing. I was in the mm. phases of this. And this one woman um, told me about an event that was going to happen in October uh, for national coming out day. I don't know if you have this in Australia. Mm. We have this event and it was going to be held at the Chicago theological seminary. And so I went, I went there and attended the event and Toward the end, this one man um, got up, he, um, and he, he was a very tall, imposing guy, and he said, um, well, I wanted to announce that my partner and I just finalized the adoption of our child. And, um, you, know, he just, you know, he just made the announcement. People were making other kinds of similar announcements. So, of course, what I did at, toward, at the end of the event was I, I, I stalked him and <laughs> <laughs> to the back of the of the um, of the chapel. And um, I caught up with him and I told him, you know, who I was and what I was doing and so on. And so he invited me to his house to meet with him and his partner. And, um, uh, you know, I went there, I don't know, a week later or something like that. And while I was there, um, so I heard all about, you know, their relationship and the process of adopting this boy through um, uh, through public um, adoption. So this was a foster child, mm-hmm. a little bit older, and this was an African American couple, and they adopted a you know a, a black a black boy. They actually subsequent to this, they adopted two other boys. So they they ended up being the parents of three, but this was mm-hmm. their first. 
This was about 2002, I believe. And, um, you know, we were just talking about all this stuff. And suddenly he said, well, you know, he, oh, and he was a, a, a student at the Chicago Theological Seminary at the time. That's why he was at this event. So he said, well, you know, I have a little congregation in, that meets here on Sundays um, at CTS. And um, I really would love it if you would come. Mm. And so I sort of thought, oh, is this really what I planned for this? You know, it somehow it wasn't on my list. And but he kept inviting me. He invited me so many times, <laughs> you know, and with such sincerity that, and I also, the place where they met was someplace I was very familiar with because the Chicago Theological Seminary is right next to the University of Chicago. And I had gone there as an undergraduate. So I knew the building. I knew, I knew exactly where all this stuff was. So it felt really easy to go there. So, um, so I said, yes. And I went, I don't know, not long after that on a mm -hmm. Sunday. And when I got there, um, uh, People were drifting in. There were, in the end, about about a dozen members of the congregation, both gay men and lesbians, and then there was one transgender uh, woman. And um, I did what I often do when I go to some event as a as an observer. I went and sat in the back in the corner, trying to make myself inconspicuous as though I possibly could be. But these <laughs> these two women came up to me and they said don't sit back there by yourself. You come sit here with us. And they each took one of my elbows. They took me over to, <laughs> to their, to their pew. And so I sat with them and, um, uh, not long after the service started, um, every, you know, as I said, it was only about a dozen people. So we were all standing in a circle and holding hands. And the pastor said, thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning, or thank you, Lord, some other thing. And this, and in the meantime, one of the people was, had collapsed on the floor. Somebody else was speaking in tongues. And I realized, I mean, I didn't know much about this, but I realized this was a Pentecostal church, which, you know, I hadn't originally known that, but I enough to know that that's what this was. So, um, uh, you know, the prayer is quite intense as I'm sure, you know, you imagine and finally, after, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes of this, thank you, Lord, for, you know, fixing my arthritis or thank you, Lord, for curing my mother of whatever. Um, he said, and thank you, Lord, for bringing us Sister Ellen, who's going to tell our stories. So, as you might imagine, I was, I was a little blown away by this. I thought, what is that about? you know, and um, I really didn't know how to respond. And I didn't know what he expected. It was, it was rather, it was rather overwhelming. Um, but the thing was, I went to this and then I chatted with people afterwards and I actually did find some gay dads through this. There was a couple who were there who were, who fit my, my categorization. And um, I liked these people, they were just terrific. And so I went back. I didn't I didn't go every single Sunday, but I went a lot. Mm. And um, through this, I met two women, one of whom was also a student at CTS and her partner. And they I became very friendly with them. And so when you know, after I left Chicago and went back to Iowa at the end of the research, I stayed in touch with them. And at one point she graduated from CTS and she started a, a church. Uh, called Pillar of Love, hmm. and it was at first meeting in a in a church near where she lived, and then it moved to the Gay Community Center in Chicago. It eventually moved back to the church in her neighborhood, uh, which was actually a UCC church or United Church of Christ. Um, but in any case, um, you know, she was telling me about that, and she told me that the way she picked the name for her congregation was. Um, from having gone to these meetings of the, at that time, they just called it the fellowship. Then later it became the fellowship of affirming ministries or TFAM mm -hmm. as it, it, it's now known. So she said she had gone to one of their meetings and she told me about Bishop Flunder. And by the way, on the cover of the book, this is Bishop Flunder's hand. <laughs> the rest of her appears inside in a photograph, but I know when I, she first saw the, 
the book, she looked at it and she said, that's my hand. <laughs> In fact, it is. So um, anyway, uh, you know, she told me about this and she said that she had a vision when she was at, um, at a fellowship meeting where the, the Holy Spirit spoke to her and told her this was the name of her church. And that was sort of some, the discourse about how people arrived at decisions. They would say, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and told me X, Y, and Z. So after a while, you know, I just kept going and they were very nice to me, very welcoming. Um, I was almost always the only white person there. Sometimes there was someone else who was usually somebody's partner. And um, I'm, I was certainly most of the time until I started going to the big fellowship things, I was the only Jewish person. Later on, there were a couple of people who were Jewish converts who were involved in this. But um, people just embraced me. Mm. And they, I had the feeling and that they were waiting for me almost, like they expected somebody would come who had my attributes, who wasn't just like them. Mm. It was a fulfillment of something they expected, that other people would come. And, um, you know, I think... People gave me the feedback that, you know, I listened to them intently. I was respectful of what they said. So I didn't, I didn't do anything that offended anybody. And, um, and of course I didn't have very firm beliefs myself. I grew up in a very, I am Jewish, but I grew up in a very, very secular family. And we actually never attended any religious services at all, ever. <laughs> <laughs> I now actually belong to a synagogue and I go to things. That, well, but now we don't go to things we, we meet on Zoom. But, mm. you know, until that happened, I would occasionally go to things. And I've, I've started to, you know, to, to, to like it. But, um, you know, so I knew, I did, certainly didn't know any doctrine or any, mm. you know, I knew that I wasn't a Christian and I knew that we didn't, you know, believe in, you know, we, we felt that Jesus Christ was one of ours who sort of, lost his way or something <laughs> you know yeah. but it wasn't yeah. um you know that he was an important person but mm -hmm. we 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 don't see him as a messiah mm -hmm. we're still waiting so um anyway but people were so nice to me and anyway at a certain point I started talking to um Phyllis and Vicky who is this this couple Phyllis is now she's a bishop was Panese but I started talking to them about, well, if I were going to do a study of this, of this, what would you think I should do? And they, they gave me some suggestions and, you know, not very specific. But in any case, Phyllis said to me, well, if you're going to do this, you should come to the convocation, which happens this summer. And I decided I would do that. It was going to meet in Atlanta in a hotel. And but I was very nervous. And she, you know, she called me back and she said, well, if you, you know, when you go, you, you should sign up for this in this hotel because that's where everything will be happening and blah, blah. You know, she was doing all these things to ease my way. So then after I'd registered for it, she called me up and she said, Ellen, the Holy Spirit spoke to me last night. So I thought, OK, here it comes. She's going to ask me to do something. And she said, um, we um, and she said, and I talked to Bishop, which meant Bishop Flunder, who's the presiding um, bishop over the whole thing that lesser bishops as well but and she's not called archbishop but we all say no when people say bishop that that's who they mean <laughs> but anyway she said well, I discussed it with bishop who I had not met yet and we decided you should lead a workshop at the convocation so you can imagine you're laughing you know it's pr it's pretty weird so I yeah. said really that's I'm very honored that you would ask me to do that um, but as you know, I'm not a Christian, I'm not black. Um, what do you think I should lead a workshop on? And she said, well, we thought you could do one on gay and lesbian relationships over the life course. So I said, well, I could do that. You know, that's a nice social science topic. I can do that. <laughs> so I said, sure, I'd, I'd love, I'd be honored to do that. But I said, I'm, I'm really amazed. Why did, how did you decide that you wanted to ask me to do this? And she said, well, we want you to know that you're part of the family. Hmm. Can you imagine? I mean, here I am, this interloper, and I'm used to people 
sometimes I, you know, when I've done research in the past, sometimes people have liked me and I've gotten along with people. Mm. Um, but I've never, I never had had an experience of being embraced this way mm. and sort of invited into people's lives mm. um, in quite this way. It was always like, I'd say, can I get together with you and talk about whatever? But um, and I, you know, and I've been doing my anthropology in the United States where it's not like I can go hang out in the village, you know, by the yes, <laughs> whatever, and wait for women to come do their laundry and then sit and talk to them. It's not like that. So you have to set things up. You have to, everybody mm. has a calendar. What day can you do it? And da, 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 you know, so it's, it's, it's much more formally structured. And I was working with categories of people in this, you know, that most recently before this gay fathers, um, who didn't necessarily all know each other. In other words, it wasn't a mm. com- doing a community study. I didn't find a village that was just gay fathers yep. hang out there and study them, which is what a more traditional anthropological approach would be. You find a place with a lot of people mm. of sort and you hang out, you know, and you live there for a year and do everything with them. But you can't, it's very difficult to do that when you're working in the U.S. If you're doing this kind of work, you could do, you know, a study of a neighborhood perhaps, but that's not what I was doing. So um, I was used to a much more formal kind of structure where people would, you know, offer me several hours of their time and then that was it. So um, this was just, you know, this was kind of amazing. Mm. And so I, and I did the workshop, people came to it, you know, to my amazement and we had a workshop and, um, and then, so when I went to the fe- to the uh, convocation, I thought, okay, this is my moment to see if there's something here to study. What is what's going on here, and what is there to look at? And um, um, I discovered that uh, there was a, there was a discourse about authenticity that was being manifested in many different ways, um, and that you know, I could watch that have unfolding in different kinds of ways. Um, an authenticity of spiritual experience and an authenticity of, of blackness in many cases, although that was slowly being less required. Um, and uh, that um, there, you know, there was a way in which people were thinking about themselves that I could look at. Mm-hmm. So I came home from this and I realized, okay, I can do this. Mm. The fellowship is dispersed over the United States. It also has um, some sections that are working in, in some countries in Africa. We have, se- you know, s- there are several leaders. You see, I said, we I identify with this. <laughs> There's also um, a guy who's, who's doing work in Southeast Asia. He's based in Hong Kong, but he goes, you know, he's doing some, sort of mission work there. But obviously the, the well, the, you know, the background of those people is, is very different. In Africa, they're, they're African, they're not you know, the descendants of slaves. So that's also, a, you, know, a di- you know, a different kind of um, context historically. But sort of leave, putting that aside, um, it's basically, there's about 40 congregations where at the time I finished the book, there were about 40 congregations scattered around the United States, some of them in large urban centers, some of them in other places you wouldn't quite expect. And because of a, a lot of this has to do with who's setting up the uh, church, who's establishing it and where are they? So for instance, there is no Los Angeles church. There's a church in Long Beach because that's where this pastor is. And Long <laughs> yeah. Beach is about, I don't know, 50 miles from Los Angeles, something like that. Mm. So there are these funny little things, but the the original church um, was established in San Francisco um, and uh, in about 1990, I believe. All right, I have a sequence of this in the book and mm. I'm at date, so I, you know, I'm not, I think that's about right. Um, and Bishop Flunder, is the person who started it. And she just started her own little church. And first they met in her living room. Mm-hmm. And then there were too many people. And so they rented a space. Mm-hmm. And then there were too many people for that little space. So they eventually bought a building. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then that building sort of became inadequate and they're now in a much bigger building in Oakland mm -hmm. um, uh, where they were able to obtain a really good deal on a building that has a lot of attributes that they want. You know, for example, a really big parking lot yeah. <laughs> um, because people come from long distances and, um, uh, you know, some, some other attributes. But in any case, that's gone on over the years. But people started coming to this and they said, oh, I think I'd like to do something like this in my area. Mm. So, um, you know, it started expanding that way, just sort of organically as one or another person would show up and say, you know, gee, we have a need for this in the community I live in. So it grew. So there, you know, there, the sort of the mother church is in Oakland, mm. in the Francisco Bay Area. Um, there's a very big church in New York, and it has a branch actually in Newark, New Jersey, which is right across the river from New York mm. City. Um, there's the one in Chicago, which is the one that um, my friend um, mm. Ellis started, but it's 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 quite established now. Uh, there's a big church in Dallas. Uh, I think a pretty big one in Washington D.C., uh, Philadelphia, and some other some mm. other. Um, so I'm not even sure where the you know. I might, I'm probably missing some. Uh, there's a, one or two in North Carolina, I'm pretty sure. Oh, and Atlanta has mm. one or possibly two mm. um, in Atlanta. So they, you know, they show up in, in different places where there's a pastor who has the kind of charisma, you know, who can start something mm. like mm. So if if Bishop Flunder has anything, it's charisma and mm -hmm. technicolor. I mean, really, she is, you know, when I think about black preaching in America, you think of people like Martin Luther King or some other people. She's in that class. Mm. It's talking. You're ready to just say, OK, here's my bank account. Here's everything. Whatever you want, I'll follow you. You know she's incredibly compelling mm, mm. Um, when she gives she gives sermons, and she's very compelling as a person one on one. You know when you talk to her, she looks at you and you feel like you are the only person in the world, and that she knows exactly what your issue is, and often she does. <laughs> She'll put her finger mm. right on it. You know, mm. obey. I know what's troubling you. Blah blah blah, and you think. Well, you know, holy crap, she really knows. And she's a very, you know, she's a very sweet and open person. Mm. And very, you know, also physically very, you know, very compelling. She's a, she's very attractive. Mm. And um, she's been with her partner for something like 35 years, something like that. Um, her And they're both former um, gospel singers. Mm -hmm partner in particular had a um a leading role in the Edwin Hawkins singers which was a group out of Oakland I don't know if you've ever heard oh happy day mm -hmm. well she's the solo um her partner Shirley is the soloist in that mm -hmm. so these these are people who, when they start singing that's the other part you know you just say okay I'm you know I'm and I can't sing at all so I really appreciate this yeah <laughs> The level of the music, even if they don't have a lot of instruments, when the singing starts, it's just transcendent. It's absolutely mm. beautiful. So, um, you know, so they come out of this these performance backgrounds in gospel music. Uh, Bishop Flunder comes from two or possibly three generations of bishops of, of the Church of God in Christ, which is the biggest principally Black Pentecostal denomination in the U.S. So I don't know if people know the history of Pentecostalism, you know, which arose mm. in the U.S. Mm. They had a there was a revival in 1905 in Los Angeles, um, and it involved both black and white people and Hispanic and who knows what else and men and women and. Um, and at some point, the fact that, you know, that there were no gender or racial 
differences being drawn began to be unworkable for them as a population. And it eventually split. And it split into a black and a white contingent. So the Church of God in Christ is the black one and the um, assemblies of assembly. assemblies of God. Thank yeah. you. Sorry. The assemblies uh, of God is the principally white one. Mm. But they came out of um, uh, the um, the revival mm. on what street it is. Azusa. Azusa, Street. Azusa, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm getting old. So things <laughs> fly out of my mind. The Azusa Street Revival, yeah. which was an amazing, you know, it was started by a black man. Mm. You think about this 1905, really? All, you know, and women and men preaching together and people, mm. you know, it was, it was incredible. Mm. So that's where it started. And Bishop Flunder sees herself as going back to the original motives that drove mm. the, the Pentecostal movement, that mm. kind of egalitarianism, for example. Yeah. Now, in the Church of God in Christ, which is the one she grew up in, women cannot be clergy mm -hmm. at all. And so it is certain, and certainly there's tremendous um, a hostility toward homosexuality, toward actually, could sounds like from what people have told me, any kind of sexuality. They're mm -hmm. very um, prudish and, but homosexuality, especially. Now that's true even when people are doing this, on, you know, in, on their own, but you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of hypocrisy in, 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 um, involved in this as well. So um, at an early age, she knew that she had the gift because she would walk down the street and people, kids would come up to her or younger people and ask her, to tell them what was going on or what they needed. Mm. I mean, she had, something was exuding mm. from her presence, but she knew she couldn't be a pastor. And so she actually left the church for a while. Mm. And realized she was a lesbian. She had a very brief marriage um, with a man who actually turned out also to be gay. And so they were sort of trying to, mm. uh, you know, let the marriage fix it, but it didn't fix it. So she she has a daughter who's probably now around 40, I think. Um, I'm not sure of her daughter's exact age, but mm. she had a daughter. And eventually she and and um and and Shirley Miller got together as a couple. They were both singing in this choir, and they were very secretive about this for a long time. And Shirley also had a daughter. And so the daughters, nobody ever told them anything <laughs> and they didn't, you know, and the mothers kept up the pretense of two bedrooms or, you know, something like that. So it took a long time for them to be able to open up about that. In the meantime, they joined another church that was much more gay positive in Oakland um, called the Love um, What is it called? I can't think of it now. Something mm. of something. Anyway, um, uh, but she didn't see it as as being as supportive of gay and lesbian relationships as it needed to be. Mm -hmm. And other felt it was tolerant, but not right. really embracing mm. and equal. So she started having this church in her house. Mm. I said it grew and grew, and then other people wanted to do the same thing and imitated it. And some of these new congregations um, survived and flourished, and some of them kind of petered out over time, especially if the person who was leading it wasn't able to do it anymore. Or, mm. you know, whatever. Yeah. So that's how it, it happened. And, and mm. the point being that it's, it's, these churches are spread out around the U.S., and um, it, it isn't like I could just, well, I could have just gone and studied one of those churches. But what I did instead was I traveled, I did a certain amount of traveling around. So I went to things in the San Francisco or the Oakland church. I went to Chicago, I went to New York, and I went to a couple of others. But the, those mm. three ones I went to the most. And um, I got some money for travel. Um, so, and, and I got some time off, so I was mm. able to. Uh, to travel around to these things. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would usually go for a weekend and then I'd do interviews while I was there and, and stuff mm. like that, go to services. Mm. And, you know, it was, um, and then I went to 
big events that they had. They had this convocation every second year. Mm-hmm. And then in the that's usually in the odd numbered years. Everything's gotten messed up by COVID. So I'm not sure where we are in the cycle anymore. But it used to be that the big convocation was in the odd numbered year. And then there was something called the leadership conference that was mm-hmm. in the numbered year. And that was actually almost as big as the convocation. And people would come from all over the place. So I went to all of those that I could go to, you know, ending before we got into, you know, lockdowns and other pleasant yeah, things. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, and, and I tried to write the book based on, on mm. all that. Mm. One and, thing. Uh, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I was interested with the, um, so you kind of talked a bit about, you know, how all that developed and particularly uh, how the Bishop sees herself, you know, coming out of that tradition, um, that very specific tradition. And, and so in the book, there's this talk of both this, uh, a reclamation, a reclaiming of black church tradition of, yes. of that from which they feel is their, you know, birthright, many of the members, but have been excluded from, pushed out from. So there's this reclaiming, but a critical reclaiming that allows it to shed yeah. different things. But also there's a sense of that being then opened to those who never had that experience, who who haven't come from that tradition as, hey, this might be a thing that also leads you into, into wholeness and, and into life. So, so yeah, I was interested a bit about that, that dynamic and interplay between um, yeah. This 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 past that is inherited but is fraught and um, but reclaiming and also mm-hmm. but but then think, seeing it as bigger than just you know and open to more and, and other. well it started off being about black people who had been in the black church and people they saw themselves as reaching out to people who had been harmed by the black church that is they'd been kicked out because they were gay or they were treated as not as good a you know they had to listen to diatribes about homosexuality or, or, you know, they were, they were subjected to indignities Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and some of them, you know, stayed in because the black church is a very, very important part of the black experience in the United States. It's the first institution that black people had, and this began even under slavery. Mm -hmm. It was their institution and they were able, to, a lot of this was inspired by uh, Methodists who, who uh, proselytized in the 19th century and from the first and second great awakening. But in any case, it meant that people could preach and have the word of God come through them. And, and even if they didn't have a big fancy education or they didn't have, you know, degrees or they didn't have you know various kinds of certifications you could be a preacher and you could and and black people even under slavery would would gather sometimes in secret locations and have um and have church um and it was something and then once they were able to have actual buildings and things like that after the end of slavery those buildings in many communities were the only public spaces that black people had control of they're the only places they could have big events in. So they became centers of political organizing. They be, they were used for a lot of things. And they also, the churches performed a lot of functions. They, they often, um, they did educational kinds of activities. They, um, they, they handled things like insurance, you know, when black people couldn't get insurance on their houses. Mm. They somehow created these, these, these kinds of, of ways of, of providing that through the church. They, they provided lots of, um, you know, lots of things that were not just religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of that was important too. And then they had traditions that made you part of something bigger than yourself. And, but also part, it, it, it represented, they represent blackness in a way that nothing else does. Mm-hmm. So um, I would sometimes hear people talking about, you know, comparing notes on the way we did this or the way we did that. And they were often claiming, well, my church was more authentic or we were more this or, you know, mm. I also around things, other big symbolic systems like food. Mm-hmm. But talk about the right way to fry chicken or the right way to do whatever it was. And my grandmother did such and such. And then they were, you know, they were reclaiming that as a piece of their heritage and I sat with people while 
they loaded up their trays with incredible amounts of food. And there were these discussions about the right way to do all this stuff. So these are symbolic um, systems that, that Black people share in this country. Mm. The religious background, you know, coming out of either Pentecostal or Baptist kinds of traditions for the most part. Mm. Now, there are other Black religious organizations in the U.S., mm. including the, you know, the, 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 you know, the black Israelites and the black yeah. Hebrew, that's something else. And there's, also, you know, African-American Catholics and there's, mm. you know, there's other stuff. But the predominant thing has been the, you know, these Southern, um, these um, denominations that originated in the South mm. and come out of, you know, come out of traditions of slavery um, initially. And then, you know, there's great theologians who have, you know, have preached to this. So um, uh, so it started with that. So they were going to be, so originally um, this, this open and affirming thing, hello, came out of, was, was an, you know, was an, intended to embrace all those people who'd been rejected. Uh, from the black church, homosexuals, people with AIDS, people who'd been to prison, um, people with questionable kinds of occupations, alcoholics, drug addicts, you know, whatever, all those people and say, welcome, you're welcome back in. Mm. You're but then it started to expand from that. So then it started to mean, well, everybody could come to this, mm -hmm. mm. including somebody like me. So I, I would frequently you know, they would use me as an example of something that they would, you know, um, they would say, and we have a Jewish sister here. And, you know, and I was the one they were, they were pointing to, um, to show that, that they were well open to everything. Yeah. I remember once I thanked Bishop Flunder for inviting me to some event and she, you know, I said, I was very honored to be there. And she said, well, Jesus Christ was one of your people, wasn't he? <laughs> So I said, yes, he was. <laughs> she, um, you know, they 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 appreciate that. Um, so, and then the other thing was to, you know, create an, an environment that was really welcoming and empowering for women. And the probably the this is changing somewhat now, but the predominant leadership has been female for a while. Now mm. there are very prominent men who are involved in this also, mm. but. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly been an arena where women could be leaders and could preach and could do all of those things and not just be the ones who taught Sunday school. Yeah. You know, or, you know stuff like that. Yeah. Um, another aspect I think that, that that shines through a lot is is this kind of discussion about how, you know, spirituality has definitely been in, like an underexplored, um, yeah, under-discussed, uh, aspect of, of, of discussions around sexuality and gender uh, and race and, and that, you know, you kind of talk about it out. It actually is, you know, it's in this, in moving into communities like this, which see themselves as more than just uh, queer spaces, more than just refuge, see themselves as being about, you know, religion, about, uh, about their place before God, about being filled by the spirit actually allows to, you know, to expand kind of the conversation around gender and sexuality, or at least, Taken in some different directions by and, and bringing in spirituality, which yeah. is this, um, you know, a, 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 a very driving factor and motivator for a lot of folks. Um, so, can you talk a little about about um, how that plays a part? And, and I guess you know, maybe a bit what you're hoping in terms of pushing into the field here of you know, this is an area worthwhile of of yeah. study and and um, and helpful in in approaching these much larger Well, I think scholars of, of sexuality have definitely underplayed this. And while anthropologists are always interested in religion, I have to say my colleagues in uh, gender, women's and sexuality studies thought this was weird when I was first mm. doing it. And they would, they would say, you know, because I said they're Pentecostals and they said, oh, they're a bunch of religious fanatics. You know, <laughs> where they're really you know, there was this assumption that this was like Jerry Falwell or something. <laughs> I was falling into the hands of these right-wing crazy people. Mm. You know, first of all, their politics are not like that. They're very progressive. Um, and they are encouraging people to vote and to be engaged. Whereas the Church of God in Christ had an idea that you shouldn't even vote. 
Mm-hmm. Because that was sort of sullying yourself with these things of the, you know, these worldly mm. activities. There, the, Bishop Flunder, I remember when she said, she said, it's a sin not to vote. Mm. You've got to, you know, you've got to do this. So they don't tell you who to vote for, of course, because we you know, can't do that in our churches, but mm. it's really clear. They do a lot of community outreach. They've done mm. all kinds of, um, you know, work with, uh, you know, people who've been incarcerated or drug addicts or other people with people with AIDS you know, or other sorts of people who need who need support. So mm. there's there's a, there's an emphasis on doing this kind of outreach. Now, I know mm. most churches do something. Um, in their communities, but this is much more targeting people mm. who are left out and ignored and that where people are embarrassed by them. Mm. So the story, um, one of the pastors in, in, in the Bay Area church told me there was a man who used to come to their church fairly often, and he was very disheveled, and he obviously lived on the street, and he would often come and he'd be drunk or otherwise inebriated. And, you know, he was, he was kind of a terrible mess. And um, uh, one time he came in and he was so dirty that he had bugs crawling on him. And so the ushers seated him in the very back of the church, you know, away from everybody else. And this pastor went up to them and she said, don't you ever do that again. You bring him up here to the front. And she put him in the front row and sat next to him and put her arm around him. She wanted him to know this is the place he needed to be where he felt visible. They were going to embrace him. Mm. Now this, who she found out his friends called him wizard. And one time she, she said to him, why did they call you that? And he said, oh, I used to be a math professor. Um, mm. So this was a person who had you know, I, you know, she never knew his whole story, but he had obviously fallen on hard times, mostly because of drinking. And at one point she she was going to talk to him about the way that Jesus Christ could help him with his drinking. And she was talking to him. And finally he said, listen, I know that Jesus Christ can can deal with this because because I am an end stage alcoholic. And I have to have a drink every day. And Jesus always finds me one. (laughs) And so she said at that point, she said, I'm done evangelizing. I'm not going to do this to anybody. This guy knew why Jesus was important in his life. He had a good reason. Mm. You know, that's what. So in other words, people said to me, aren't they going to try to convert you? (laughs) Nobody ever, you know, when I told people that, 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 other people I knew thought that they just would start laughing. They thought that was the silliest thing I ever, they ever heard because they'd say, if, if I was going to be converted, it was going to be because the Holy spirit would come into me mm-hmm. and tell me to do this. And there was nothing they could do to make that mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. And giving me a lecture was not going to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, um, you know, it was either going to happen or it wasn't mm-hmm. and said, Oh, I know you'll eventually join us because, <laughs> You know, I was so comfortable there and I liked it so much. But, you know, when and I'd watch people falling out and going into trances, they don't they, of course, don't call it a trance. They call it being filled with the spirit. But people would you know, be on the floor and, you know, I looking as though they were unconscious. I never could quite figure out if they were or weren't. And I asked people and they said they didn't know, which was kind of amazing. But um they always looked so peaceful when they came out of this state. And I once said to one of the pastors, oh, I wish I, you know, that looks so lovely and peaceful. I wish I could do that. And he said, well, you could, you know, and I said, yeah, but the part about, um, you know, it being, you know, embracing Jesus Christ, I can't do that. You know, the minute they say that, you know, I, you know, as a Jew, that's my limit. can't do it. <laughs> So I, you know, I don't, the only thing I didn't participate in was the Eucharist mm. because I consider, I would, I consider that would be an insult to them because I really don't believe it. Mm. And also it kind of offends me in a personal way. So I always, whenever they're ready to do that, I leave the room. Mm. And I noticed that the other two people who were Jewish identified did that also. 
they would leave the room also that, that, you know, and those people were converts to Judaism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They knew much more than I did, of course. <laughs> um, but we were invited to lead um, uh, services on, on Shabbat on Friday night at the, at the national convocation. And um, it was announced that we would be doing that. And there was this one guy who was, he was a, a transgender man who had also converted to Judaism. Mm -hmm. And um, in the Bay, he's from the Bay Area, and I've seen him also at the Gay Synagogue in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So he goes to that, and he goes to this, and you know he's involved in both. So he asked me, he said, "Oh, did you bring your siddur with you? A siddur is a prayer book." So of course I don't even own one actually. <laughs> so I, I I said no. So he you know he led the service. I had to go on on um, on Google to make sure I was going to say the right prayer because I was afraid I might. I might, you know, instead of introducing the Sabbath, I might, I might bless the wine or something by mistake, because I don't, I don't know a lot of these, these prayers by heart. So I went and checked that I had the right thing to say. And, um, you know, it was nice. Mm. They just, and they have other things that embrace other, um, other groups. So if you, I have a picture in the book of an altar and it has, it has a menorah on it. It has a bunch of Native American stuff. It has a Buddha. It has mm. just a ton of things. And you could keep adding to it and putting other representations. So they consider all of this is part of worshiping God and is welcome. Mm. And people from any tradition are welcome. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, whether they're Christian or Black or white or gay or straight or whatever. So it is predominantly LGBT. It is predominantly black, but not, not only, you know, mm -hmm. and some very central people in the church, like in the Oakland um, church, there's a man who's a, he's a white guy from Kentucky and he grew up in a white Pentecostal church. I don't know if it was assemblies of God. It probably was one of these independent ones because he's from a small town, you know, the mm -hmm. place, didn't ask him this, but you know, some of them do the snake handling and <laughs> yes. other stuff. So he comes from one of those and um, he's gay and he had a gay brother and they both went off to San Francisco when they were young and mm -hmm. kind of look back. Well, look back a little bit, but not much. And so he hadn't been to church in years, you know, mm -hmm. 30 years, something like that. And somebody told him about this church and he went so he was probably, you know, one of the only white people there. He walked mm. in and they started the church service and he started crying and mm. he cried the whole service. He came back the following Sunday. He cried through the whole one then. You know, it was, he found his world. Mm. And, mm. Um, you know, he's been, he's been a central, he's taken on all these leadership roles since then. Yeah. And he, he's been really involved in it mm. and he's, by everyone everybody adores him mm. so you know there's no and I you know I I did some stuff with sending um there was a woman I met who who was in Los Angeles who also came from one of these white Pentecostal traditions and she was a lesbian and she'd basically been kicked out of her church because of that completely kicked out but later she had breast cancer and she was very sick she did eventually die but she was very sick and I, I, um, oh, she was in, she was in San Francisco. We, she was also an anthropologist and she was there for our convention. And I asked her if she wanted to come to the church with me. At that time it was still in San Francisco and she came and she says, is it okay that I'm white? I said, absolutely no problem. And I, she came with me and it was wonder, you know, she mm. just, she felt like she'd come home. Mm. So, you know, the, the service is in many ways pretty traditional, including the fact that it's somewhat improvisational. Mm -hmm. You know, like sometimes they have a program, but they don't always follow it. Something happens. Some somebody's feel, you know, gets the spirit comes to them and they decide to do something else at that. Mm -hmm. But it's it's um, they do the traditional hymns. They do uh, things that people, you know, people know. Yeah. And um, I brought. I went to the church in New York once, took a friend of mine with me, who's an anthropologist also, and has studied religion a lot. And her comment was, oh, these people look so comfortable. 
you know, they're, they're just mm. so, you know, I would have to be looking at the words or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't know these hymns. Yeah. They're not my childhood hymns, but, <laughs> you know, people, and, you know, of course, you know, and there's a, there are these musical traditions, everybody's harmonizing and mm. some of the, mu- the music is just um, out of this world. It's mm. so beautiful. Mm. Well, so, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. The book, folks, this is like, the, we've hint, you know, this is, the, we've just, if you've been captivated by this story, by wanting to know more about this, this community, uh, its roots, its, uh, you know, a uh, way it identifies, the way it reaches out, the way it understands itself and, and moves in the world, then please do check out the book, Filled with the Spirit, Sexuality, Gender and Radical Inclusivity in a Black Pentecostal Church Community. Um, it's, it's, it's yeah, really an excellent read. And, and I think, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting going back to that very first comment of, you know, you're there to tell the story and, and, and it's, it's good that it has been told um, and I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really um, excellent study and and has a lot of, as we kind of touched on a bit, implications for how we think about sexuality and identity and uh, and communities uh, um, in in this in this way, religious communities in this way. So, um, Ellen, Ellen, thank you so much for for oh, joining us and talking. I just talked to Blue Streak, huh? It was just- great question and I'm off and running. Um, yeah, I would. Um, yeah, it's really been, it's been a wonderful experience to work with these folks and I just miss them so much because mm. summer when I couldn't go visit with them because I, I had knee, oh, right after I retired, I had knee surgery and so I couldn't go. And, and they, we had COVID after that. Mm. And um, I haven't seen a lot of these folks in a long time, but um Hope you can get in a room with them soon. You know that'd be. <laughs> no, I hope there's going to be. I think there's going to be something later this or in the fall. There's going to be mm-hmm. some kind of a Zoom thing. Yeah. Which I'm mm-hmm. I'm going to sign up for, but it doesn't feel the same as being, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. with people. Yeah. But they're they're amazing people. They're very, um, and they do remind us that gay people have other needs besides, you know going out to clubs and getting dressed in unusual outfits. Um, And that's what I've, you know, I've devoted my career to talking about gay people's experience with children, with being parents. Uh, Then I have a book about same-sex commitment ceremonies, Mm -hmm. which dates to before there was any legal same-sex marriage anywhere. Mm. Having, you know, they were having weddings. Mm what they were doing with that, you know, and then, you know, and then this. So Mm. more diversity to um, gay people than anybody Mm. gay community imagines. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I think that definitely, yeah, comes through well in the book. And uh, so, yeah, thank you for for joining us. And, um, yeah, folks, pick up the book and uh, we'll see you next week.